an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's great to be back at Franciscan University. I, uh, I don't say this about the other people who have spoken, but I'm pretty sure in my case, distinguished just means old. So, um, <laughs> but it's great to be with you. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited, it's just great to be back. So much of my life since I've left here is a, just a straight trajectory from my time here. And so I hope that the same is true for you and that God blesses you richly at a very dynamic, exciting, amazing moment in human history and in church history. And I wanna jump right to the, the point. I wanna share with you right off the bat my thesis. My thesis is that you were made to be amazing, spectacular drop-dead, over-the-top, awesome. In fact, St. Catherine of Siena said this about you. If you are what you were meant to be, you will set the world on fire. And I believe that's true not only of you, but of every single person you're ever going to meet. And it is at the heart of the Catholic gospel to help people to come to realize that by gazing upon the face of Jesus Christ and coming to discover who we are in his eyes. And so what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to share with you just an experience I had uh, late last year and, uh, that led me to Rome, and then kind of an insight from there, just the very first step in what it means to help people discover who they're meant to be and how they can become who they're meant to be so that they can set the world on fire. Because the world and the devil really don't want you to figure this out. The devil is terrified of you and you becoming who you're meant to be. He's been in an all-out campaign and crusade against you all, from the moment of your conception, even before you were conceived, in an unprecedented attack upon you, because he knows in your generation something extraordinary is going on. When God was going to do something amazing in the person of Moses, the devil inspired Pharaoh to attack the Hebrew male children, and many of them were massacred. But Moses wasn't. He escaped, and he led the Israelites free. When Jesus came on earth, Herod was inspired by the devil to attack the Hebrew male children, and many were slaughtered. But Jesus wasn't, and he became the savior of the world. Never in the history of the world has there been a generation that has had the world at war with it more than you through abortion and contraception and infanticide. There are so many distractions. If you're lucky enough to be born into a culture where you can actually have food to eat, you're filled with distractions like never before. There's never been a generation in the history of the world that's been at more under attack than you, and that's because he's terrified of you, our enemy, the devil which means it's all the more important that the church play its A game right now and help people to become who they're meant to be because if you, your generation, it's true for all of us, but there's something extraordinary about your generation that is, is so true that if we could help your generation become who they're meant to be in Christ, they would set the world on fire and we will rob defeat and turn it into victory in Christ. So how do we do that? What does it mean to be a, a leader in the new evangelization? And for me, this was hit home in a lot of different ways, but I want to share just one story with you that uh, was last September, and I'm driving to work, and I'm, I'm about 10 minutes out from, from the work, and it, my phone rings, and so I, I, I answer the phone. I don't know if that's legal here in Ohio. It is in Colorado, so I have to be careful where I'm saying this, but I answered the phone, and it was my assistant, my executive assistant, and she said, are, are you, are, where are you going to be in the office? And I said, why are you so excited? What's the matter? She goes, there's an urgent call from the Vatican. I don't know if you ever had an urgent call from the Vatican. <laughs> but I'm going 70 miles an hour, and I'm thinking, what did I do? You know, I, this could be a really bad day for me. And uh, so by the time I got to the office, I said, hey, I'm about 10 minutes out. By the time I got to the office, she came to the door, and she said, they called again. 
And I thought, oh, wow. So uh, by the t- I got to my office, the phone rang a third time, and there's a bishop from the Vatican calling. He says, is, is this uh, Curtis? I said, yes. And he, and he said, that's this bishop with an Italian last name. And, uh, and I, I, I said, uh, yes. He said, Curtis Martin. I said, yes, Your Excellency. And then he said, uh, the Holy Father has assigned you to serve at the Extraordinary Synod of Bishops. You will be coming, yes? <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I had given a heads up a couple weeks earlier by Archbishop Chaput, who has become a dear friend. I met him right after I graduated from here. And he called. He said, uh, I was asked to uh, recommend you uh, to the Synod, and uh, I didn't do anything to torpedo you, so you're probably going to get a call. So I knew that it was a call, but I had talked to my wife, because the whole month of October, we still have five kids at home, and three in college, and, and I, you know, to be gone the entire month of October is kind of crazy. So I thought, you know, how, what would we decide? Well, when the call came, there was no invitation. <laughs> it was, you will be there, yes? <laughs> I guess I'll tell my wife I'll be gone <laughs> for October. And uh, so we, uh, I was amazing. And so I went home, and, and uh, we made the plans. And I don't know if you've ever been to a synod. I had never been to one. And uh, you show up, and it's, it's amazing when you're Catholic, because the Catholic Church is, is so wonderful, and it's, it's hierarchical, and it's, it's filled with ritual. And so it, it, one of the deals is when you get to the Vatican, they're the Swiss Guard, and they're all dressed in these Michelangelo suits, and they've got these medieval weapons, and, and they're kind of intense. And when the Pope arrives... Even before he gets there, they're at full salute. In fact, you know when he's getting close because they go to full salute before he even gets there. And if you're a cardinal or an archbishop and you come up, they're not at full salute, but when, they, when you get close, they go to full salute and they click their heels. And, it's really, and, and if you're a priest, they, they go to salute. And if you're a layman, they go, where do you think you're going? <laughs> and, and, uh, but I got a badge. And my badge, I got to get in. And not only that, if I made eye contact with them, they had to salute me. <laughs> they didn't have to salute me if I didn't make eye contact. So I would walk by and go. <laughs> you know, it was very cool. And so you, you get into the Senate Hall, and there's actually a hall in the Vatican, upstairs above where they have the indoor Wednesday audiences, in the Paul VI Hall. There's a room, and it seats 300 people, and they have earphones for translations, and it's, it's set up specifically for the Synod. And it's amazing because the church, like I said, is hierarchical. So you walk in, and it's this amphitheater. And literally, you can tell how important people are. There's a chair right at the bottom looking up at everybody right in the middle for the Pope. And if he's not there, it's empty. And then you start over on the side, and you have the patriarchs of the ancient churches, uh, Antioch and Jerusalem. And then when the the patriarchs are done, the, the cardinals, and they wrap back and forth for two or three rows. And then archbishops for five or six rows, and then bishops for seven or eight rows, and then the heads of the religious congregations, the men and women religious congregations, and then there were a handful, just a couple dozen of lay experts, of which I was one. And you could literally uh, tell by where you were seated how important you were. So I I could sit down, I could look to my left and say, you are a bigger deal than I am. You're more important than I am. You're not. And, uh, and so it was kind of fun to be there, and, uh, and it kind of gave you an idea uh, of how amazing this was. I was talking to Cardinal Schoenborn, who's the editor of the Catechism. He's the Archbishop of Vienna, and we have gotten to be friends. And I was talking to him one day in the Synod Hall, and he said, Oh, Curtis, I remember my first Synod many years ago as a priest. As a priest, I, I came as an expert, and now, now I am a cardinal, and I sit in the front. Then I was a priest, and I sat in the back. 
had a terrible seat way in the back. I think it's your seat. <laughs> and then he said this, this is how cool it is to be Catholic. He said, I remember, because right in front of me, Mother Teresa. And at the bottom, Pope John Paul. And I said, your eminence, I have your seat, because right in front of me is the successor of Mother Teresa. And right at the bottom is the successor of John Paul. And for 23 days, we met every day, morning and, and evening, except for Sundays. And for 21 of the 23 days, the Holy Father was with us. And it was absolutely amazing to, to experience this. And what I want to do is I just want to share with you just a fundamental impression about the very first step of the new evangelization. One of the most frequently asked questions I have is, so what is the new evangelization? And, and which is tough, because for those of us in the United States, we actually never experienced the old evangelization. And so it's a, we really got to answer both questions, not just what is the new about the evangelization, but what exactly is evangelization in the first place. The church in the United States grows every year, but it grows because of immigration and births and marriages. There has never been a systematic evangelistic effort in the United States from the Catholic Church, other than before the United States was there, we had the Franciscans out in California. But really, in our national memory, evangelization isn't part of our culture. And so what does it mean to enter the new evangelization for a nation which has been great in, in the uh, works of mercy, the, particularly the corporal works of mercy, but not always as effective in the spiritual works of mercy, particularly evangelization? So what does that mean? And uh, there was a, there's a fundamental theme that I want to talk to you about that I think is going to become critical for us. It really rose to, the, uh, to my attention as we sat for weeks, literally, thinking and praying, and there were high points and low points. Uh, at the lowest point, I literally, we were two weeks into it, and we wrote a draft document. You know, and to get 300 people to draft a document, it was a nightmare. And I, really, I was very, it was the lowest point. I was so discouraged. It, was, it just didn't say anything. There, was, there wasn't a hint of prophetic tone. And we were trying to send somebody to encourage the Holy Father, and it was just bureaucratic. And I, I literally, I was just sitting there going, two weeks? And I, I walked downstairs, and, and I, we had coffee, a coffee break in the morning, and Cardinal Pell, who's the Archbishop of Sydney, Australia, uh, came up and he said, so Curtis, how's it going? And I said, your eminence, in all honesty, I've got to tell you, this is a low point. I, if I could go home right now, I'd just leave. And he goes, ah, oh, Curtis, I've been to about six of these. This is the best document I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, uh, perspective is good. But the low points were few and far between, and the high points were unbelievable. And as we sat and watched both the humanity of the church and the divinity of the church wrestling, in prayer with God and with one another, discussing and debating, centered around the Vicar of Christ, a theme came out, several, but I want to lead you to the first one, which is this, that we, the church is, going, is inviting each of us first and then everyone on earth to come to a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. A personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I want to talk to you about that. That's going to lead us in the process of evangelization, to inviting people into intentional discipleship. That's beyond the pale. Maybe we can do a little bit of question and answer on that. But tonight I want to talk to you about that personal encounter because that's the first step. And if we don't make this first step, we're never going to be able to take the second step. This is an essential that without which, if you don't do this, you really can't get where you need to go. First step to encounter Jesus Christ. So let me give you an example of encountering Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a few, actually. The first one I'm going to give you is from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we see the setting is this, that John the Baptist has just met Jesus, and he's just said, uh, this is the Lamb of God. And a couple of his disciples, we find out in context, it's Andrew and John, uh, are, are disciples of John the Baptist, 
And when J and John says, that's the Lamb of God, they're like, all right, I guess we'll go be his disciples now. And so they, they, they're following him. And we, we pick up the, the account and, and we're told, behold the Lamb of God. In verse 37 of chapter 1 it says, and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following him and said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they came with him and remained. And it was about four o'clock. Now, I don't know what your experience of reading the Bible is. I have, at times in my life, experienced tremendous encouragement and inspiration reading the Bible. But I have to tell you, there are times that reading the Bible drives me absolutely crazy. And this is one of those times. Now, there's, this, is, this is what we got. This is divine revelation in its written form, and, and it's right there. And if you were to take, it's not even, this is all the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. That's all we got. That's all we got. Do I really need to know? Do you really need to know that it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Really? <laughs> Do you know how many things aren't in here? Oh, my goodness. Let's take a couple of examples. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking on the road, and all of a sudden, we see in, in verse 27 of chapter 24, it tells us, and Jesus turned to them, and beginning with Moses, he explained all the scriptures to them and how they, they related to him. We don't get anything, not a single word, on what he actually said. Oh my goodness, everything in Scripture, starting with Moses, about Jesus, everything. Not one word, but we learn it's 4 o'clock? Really? <laughs> Who is doing the editing here? Unbelievable. 4 o'clock? Nothing. Or how about this? In Acts, we see Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, and they're, and they're going along, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the, the prophet Isaiah. And Philip comes up and says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how could I understand unless somebody explains it? And we're told in Acts, and beginning with that passage, Isaiah, he explained Christ to him. Not a single word of what he said. Not one. All we know is that when he was done, the eunuch said, hey, there's some water. What would keep me from being baptized? Oh, my goodness. I would love to have heard that homily. Are you kidding me? Starting from Isaiah and the solution was baptism? Billy Graham never preached a gospel like that. I don't know what he said and not a single word. Nothing. But we get four o'clock. Why in the world would we get that? Well, I think there's a reason. I think there's a reason. We've got to think about this for a second. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels written. It's written late in the apostolic period, at the end of John's life. At the end of John's life, in prayer, he is moved by God to write down his memoirs. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, using all of his human faculties and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes all that God wants and only what God wants through his human nature, his specific human nature. And as he, at the end of his own life, having lived a full and rich, beautiful and tragic, amazing and wonderful life, at the end of his life, as he thinks back to the day he met Jesus Christ, he recounts how he was with his master, John, the, the Baptist. And all of a sudden, John, who had said, I am not he who is coming, turned to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And they left their master and their friend, and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus, seeing them, turns and says, 
what do you see? And they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. It's about 4 o'clock. Everything changed. Everything changed. Because John encountered Jesus Christ at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the question we have to ask ourselves, the question I want to ask you is, what's your 4 o'clock? Jesus Christ wants to encounter you in such a profound way that everything in your life from that moment is different. Everything in your life is different. Do you know that St. Peter, you know, before he was St. Peter, before he was a follower of Jesus Christ, he was a fisherman. You all know it. But do you think on any given day, on his best of days, on his worst of days, he's ever sitting out in the boat, and he's Simon the fisherman, and do you ever think anywhere inside of him, he was like, I think i got a little bit of rock in me. No idea that he's Peter. No idea. Because that truth about him could only come to light in the presence of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you. And for me, and for every single person you're ever going to meet. You will never be who you're meant to be until you encounter Jesus Christ. Peter could never be Peter until he encountered Christ and dropped the nets. Have you dropped your nets? Have you encountered Christ in such a profound way that nothing will ever be the same? Because if we don't, everything about Catholicism actually doesn't make any sense. When we think about Christianity and Catholicism as a religion, as a set of ethical codes and rituals, it's all true, but we miss the heart of the matter. And when we miss the heart of the matter, we actually change our understanding about the entire thing. Imagine, if you will, that you're going back in time. I've been married 23, almost 24, November 24 years. And 24 almost years ago, it was my wedding day, and, and, and I'm standing in a sanctuary of a church, Our Lady of the Assumption Church out in California, and I'm looking at my soon-to-be bride, Michael Ann, and I'm looking at her, and, and I could have thought to myself as we were preparing to exchange vows, I, I could have thought accurately, I, I'm never going to kiss another woman. I'm never even going to date another woman. I'm, I'm going to have to call when I'm late. <laughs> this is going to create a whole bunch of work for me that I actually don't have in my life right now. And every single one of those things would be true. Do you think that's what I was thinking? Are you nuts? If you'd met my wife, you'd know what I was thinking. What I was thinking as I look at my soon-to-be bride is, <laughs> if she doesn't figure out in the next two minutes <laughs> that she is marrying way down, I win. I don't care if I never kiss another woman. And I haven't, except for my mom and my daughter, who's here with us tonight. I haven't, and I'm fine with that. I haven't gone on any other dates, and I do have all kinds of extra work, and I don't care, because it all makes sense in light of the love affair that is my relationship with my wife. And here is the bone-chilling reality that was shared with me just a few months ago from a dear friend of mine, Peter Herbeck. Peter and I work together at EWTN's uh, Crossing the Goal, and we've developed a wonderful friendship. He's a great evangelist. And he shared this image with me that I have not been able to shake. He said, Curtis, I'm convinced that the vast majority of, of Catholics are in a loveless marriage with God. Really married, but in a loveless marriage. And when you're in a loveless marriage, you may not leave, but you're not going to be a great ambassador for the institution of marriage. And, and the world's solution for a loveless marriage is divorce. Let's get it over with. But the Catholic solution 
isn't divorced. The Catholic solution is that marriage is meant to last, and so you have to go and rekindle the love that brought about the marriage in the first place. And the work of the new evangelization is a rekindling of the love affair between Almighty God, who is rich in mercy, and us, me, you, so that, rekindled in our love, we'll have the right perspective about all the truths of the faith, which are all true, and we should love them all. I gladly embrace the chores that I have to do in my married life on my good days. I gladly do, because they make sense in light of the love relationships that I have. And when they feel heavy and burdensome and I don't want to do them, it's because my heart's gone cold. And the same thing is true. All of the church asks us, it's all true and beautiful, but it's only true and beautiful the way that it's supposed to be true and beautiful in light of the love affair that's at the heart of the Catholic faith. To be able to see this, this powerful reality that is deeply relational. See, it's this encounter with Christ, realizing that, that he's not just a historical figure, and he's not just a person who gave us teachings. Those are both true. He is a historical, and he did give us teachings. But he's alive today. And he wants to be in relationship with you and with me. And, and it's amazing because I can love an idea, but I can't be in love with an idea. But I can be in love with a person. And God is a community of persons. And one of those persons took on our nature so that we could come to know the face, the human face of God, so that we could be brought into the relationship. See, at the heart of our faith is relationship. Jesus defines this beautifully. In the only definition of eternal life that I know of in Scripture, Jesus gives it in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this about eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, there are many very powerful words in that very short statement. God, Jesus, eternal life. But I, I think in some ways the hinge word in the entire passage is know. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And, and for us in the English language, we limp because, as is often the case, we blend words that mean different, we use the same word to mean different things, and it, this blend doesn't allow us to see the vividness of what Jesus is saying. Some of the other languages do a better job. For example, Spanish has two words for know. Saber, to know a fact, two plus two is four, and conocer, to be acquainted, to be in relationship with. It, when Jesus is translated into Spanish, they use the verb conocer. This is eternal life, that you would know conocer. You, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Not just to have head knowledge about God, but to be in relationship with God. To be acquainted with him. To have encountered him. And that's beautiful, but see, Jesus didn't speak Spanish or English. He spoke Aramaic, the spoken form of, of Hebrew. And there's a beautiful word in Aramaic and Hebrew that is even more beautiful than konoser. The Hebrew word, the Aramaic word is yada. Yada means to be in deep, intimate, personal, Lifelong, life-giving, covenantal relationship. This is eternal life. That they would be in deep, intimate, personal, lifelong, life-giving, covenantal relationship with you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, that's Jesus' only definition, the Bible's only definition of eternal life. Why is it so important for Catholics? 
Because of the 2,865 articles in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's the very first sentence. It's the very first sentence. It's why they wrote the rest of the Catechism. Because it's a love affair. The first time the Bible uses the word yada, Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son. It's the same word for marriage and the marital act. Deep, intimate, personal, lifelong, life-giving, covenantal relationship with the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's the heart of our faith. And everything that we teach about our faith flows from that fundamental truth that our eternal life is essentially relational. And everything we're asked to do within Catholicism flows from and towards that relationship. It, it begets that relationship and strengthens that relationship. That's what Catholicism is. is a love affair between you and the living God and between every person that you'll ever meet who has also been invited to come to know a God who loves them, who is rich in mercy and loves them. Jesus gives a, a, a number of beautiful teachings in the scriptures in his parables. I want to share with one of them with you. He gives seven of them in, the, in Matthew chapter 13. Seven parables. And in the seven parables, he talks about the kingdom in different ways. Uh, I want to share with you just one of them. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's actually the shortest of the seven. Jesus says this, about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he hid. And for joy over it, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. See, I think we as Catholics, we get it backwards. I talk to Catholics all the time, and I talk to them about this, and, and I, I say, so how's that Catholicism thing going for you? And, 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 they, and they, they start to bend over a little bit. <sighs> this Catholicism thing is tough, man. I mean, have you noticed? I mean, this is a big book. There's no pictures in here. <laughs> and now we got another one, a catechism, just as big, and only four pictures in that one. And then you got encyclicals, can of law. And it's like always Lent. <laughs> it's so hard to be Catholic. And I think the reason that it is is because I think we're trying to live our faith in search of the treasure. We're in the middle of trying to sell all that we have so that we could find the treasure. And that's not what the parable said. The parable said you found the treasure first. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, went and sold all that he had. Do you think the guy was walking around going, oh, this field buying stuff is hard work. Oh, my goodness. I don't think so. I think he was walking around going, want to buy a watch? <laughs> I want a car. <laughs> you can have anything you want. It's all yours. You know, just, I will sell you anything I... <laughs> Hang on a second. I just... Okay. I will sell you anything. Seriously, take whatever you want. I, I, I mean, he's just for joy. He's, he's giddy with excitement because he knows as soon as he gets rid of his junk, even if it's really cool junk, he can go buy the field. And then he'll have the treasure and he can get whatever he wants because the treasure is so much greater than everything he has. And for joy over it, he went and sold all that he had. 
Is that our experience of Catholicism? I got to tell you, some days, brothers and sisters, that's not my experience of Catholicism. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to sell my stuff so I can find the treasure. No, 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 no. The treasure comes first. And then for joy over it, I live my Catholic faith. See, this is the reality of St. Paul. St. Paul, you know the experience of his conversion. We know it very well. Maybe what you don't know is that after St. Paul has his conversion, two more times in the book of Acts, he does something very interesting. Two more times in the book of Acts, he is pulled out on trial. He's on trial, and essentially they say, why are you doing the crazy things that you're doing? They're very unsettling and you need to stop. And he answers the question both times on trial in the same way. He says, I was on my way to Damascus and I encountered Jesus Christ. And I can't live the way I used to live anymore. Because everything has changed in my life. I, I, was, I was going, I thought I knew where I was going. And, and then I encountered him and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, and I live a totally different life now. In fact, this is what St. Paul says. Uh, at, at a point in time, he tells us in Philippians, he starts to tell us about the amazing life that he had. I mean, you're here at Franciscan University, an amazing university, my alma mater. I'm very grateful to be here. I hope you're grateful too. An amazing place surrounded by amazing people. I mean, you're kind of like a, a super Catholic. But see, St. Paul was like a super Jew. He was amazing. And he was better at being Jewish than you are being Catholic. I mean, he was really good at it. And, and, and so he's telling us, he tells us two or three times, but in Philippians he tells us, he says, uh, I was Jewish, yeah, Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. Studied under Gamaliel, one of the top Pharisees in the world. As to the law, blameless. I was crushing it, crushing it. And then he tells us, then I encountered Jesus Christ and I counted all his loss. In fact, he goes on and says, it's, literally, he uses the word crap. It's a pile of manure. Literally, the stuff I had going for me before, and I was good. I was really good. Better than you. And it's worthless in light of the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything has changed for me. Any accomplishment that I could possibly have had, I don't care about any of those, because that's the stuff I'm selling with great joy to obtain the field. So because I know there's a treasure hidden in it because I hid it there. And once I get my stuff sold, I'm going to buy that field. And when I buy the field, the treasure is mine. We have to recognize that this is true for the great saints over and over and over again. It was true for, and it should be true for us. Because we, even if we're not saints, we are saints in making. And that first step is an encounter, a life-changing confrontation, if you will, with the person of Jesus Christ. Father Contalamesa, the papal preacher, says this about an encounter with Jesus Christ. He's reflecting on the person of St. Francis of Assisi. You might have heard of him here at Franciscan University. And he said that, he says, Father Contalamesa says, St. Francis is the model of the new evangelization. Why? Because St. Francis had such a powerful, profound encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. In his life, he was almost like what's going to be in your life and my life when we enter the beatific vision. The theologians and the saints will tell us that once you actually see God as he is, you will never be able to sin again. You won't be able to take your eyes off him for the rest of eternity. We will be completely enraptured. And that St. Francis, Contalamesa says, had such a profound encounter with Jesus Christ that for the rest of his earthly life, he couldn't take his eyes off his master. And as he's writing the article several times, he says, Oh, Lord, grant me that encounter before I die. 
But whether you've had that profound of an encounter or a, just a profound encounter that has totally changed your life, but you can still take your eyes off the Lord, that's me. Unbelievable what God has done in my life. And yet I can tell you there are still times I'm like, Lord, you're all, wow, that's something shiny over there. And I, <laughs> I'm just not, I'm like a kitten with a ball of yarn. It's just not good, you know. And so pray for me because there's something really broken in here. But, but I pray with Father Conte Lameso, Lord, grant me that encounter that Francis had before I die. And if not, certainly grant it to me when I die. Because that's our destiny, to be so enraptured with Christ, so in love with him, that this life, all of a sudden, everything in this life is viewed in light of him and where we're going with him. Jesus tells us that the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. And it is very true for us to realize that encountering Jesus is for us to encounter that great treasure. That great treasure. But there's another way to look at the parable. There's another way to look at the parable. We have to recognize that we can look at the parable through Jesus' eyes. See, through Jesus' eyes, he has encountered a treasure. And that treasure is you. And for joy over you, he has sold all that he has. So that he could buy you. He has exchanged his life for you. Because the story of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is not that we love God. It is that God loves us. Even when we're sinners. That he could find us hidden in the field and see us covered in dirt and grime of sin and brokenness. And see underneath that covering of filth, a treasure of immeasurable value. And as we're told in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Where did he get that joy? He was looking at you. He was looking at you. He was looking at everybody you're ever going to meet. And this is why it's so important for us as Catholics to remember this. We're in the middle of a cultural war. And we sometimes sit back and say, oh, well, these, these guys are bad guys, and I don't know who your bad guy is. Maybe it's the President of the United States. Maybe it's somebody else. You sit back, oh, he's a bad guy because I disagree with him. And we think, well, he's the enemy. He's not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. He's the prize. And so is everybody who disagrees with us in this culture. They're not the enemy. They're the prize. We are fighting for them, not against them. As evangelists, we need to love those who are our enemies because Christ first loved us. And see in them that if they were to encounter Christ, they could become who they were meant to be. And if they became who they were meant to be, they would set the world on fire. St. Ignatius of Loyola, building upon that same theme, used to close all of his meetings with the early Jesuits with this basic phrase that he would say at the end of every meeting. They'd sit down, they'd strategize, you know, this group of young men, they were growing, and they were being ordained. At the end of the meetings, he would turn to them and say, go set the world on fire. Go set the world on fire. It became one of his famous quotes. It's all predicated upon the fact that there's a fundamental truth in Catholicism, and the world doesn't know it. See, the world thinks we want to get them to behave. We don't want to get them to behave. We want them to fall in love. And then they will want to behave. See, because if I'm in love, I recognize that my behavior will either hurt or help my beloved. In the context of relationship, 
Morality makes perfect sense. Because morality gives us the freedom to love the way that we want to. Without it, I'm just a broken, selfish man who can't love even if I wanted to. But with the virtues, I actually start to grow into the man that God wanted me to be. With God's grace, I start to grow into the man he wants me to be. Because at the heart of the new evangelization is this fundamental first step of encountering the person of Jesus Christ. And as you do, and as you do again, and as you do again, and as you invite others by sharing your story, just as St. Paul shared his, you will help them to encounter a God who loves them, a God who's rich in mercy. And as they encounter him and enter into a life of intentional discipleship with him, they'll become who they were meant to be. And they'll set the world on fire. So go set the world on fire. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.